Episode three, Dennis. We made it. I know it's such a milestone. Yeah, I'm. I'm pretty pretty happy so far. Because I think it's good. Haven't <laughs> one one nice thing is because of the way we're recording this, we can't get any feedback yet. So we're just like blindly <laughs> going on, feeling good about ourselves. When that feedback train rolls in, it's gonna be Uh-oh. a pretty depressing day, huh? <laughs> yes, I, I, I'm dreading it. So. Let's record at least 12 episodes before we actively uh, solicit feedback. Season one. Yeah. Season we'll one. Do it the like entirety a, of season one. <laughs> no pilot episode. <laughs> Let's just do it. Um, we, we thought it was fun last episode where we did our little icebreaker to get to know each other. Yes. And we thought we'd keep that going for a couple episodes. Yes. And so for this one, uh, one of our, uh, you know, international pub uh, uh, conversations was about you and I forming a book club where we would read like the top hundred novels ever, and we started going through that list. Uh, Which I think put- I've read very few of. Like- <laughs> yes, yes. So I think that's you know let's let's why don't we just cover you know what books we've actually read as a as yeah, which is surprising because I think we're both pretty active readers. I, I mean, I'm in the car a lot. I I like audio books. I also when I'm on vacation. Basically, like, have you ever been to um, San Diego where they have that La Jolla beach with all the sea lions? I've not been there, but I think they have a bunch of sea lions that appear in San Francisco too, right? Okay. You know, they just kind of like, if you gave a sea lion a Kindle, that's mm-hmm. me on vacation, basically. <laughs> that's my ideal vacation. That is my so, ideal vacation too, watching you read on a wharf somewhere. Oh. Yes. Uh, you're going to get. <laughs> nasty letters I think. um okay so book club time did you want to go first or uh no, well okay let me throw it to you because you said that you like to read but you like the audiobook so what was the last audiobook that you listened to ah or yes are okay. listening that's to? well <laughs> there's two <laughs> i i the last one i completed is uh it's the fourth book in what's called the Bobiverse series. Are you familiar with this? I am not. Dennis E. Taylor is this, uh, he's, the, the author, is by trade a computer programmer. Um, and he wrote a science fiction series of books that uh, are called the Bobiverse. So this is the fourth one. So I won't really, I mean, it's not, probably if people aren't familiar, then there's no point in me talking about the fourth book. The the basic premise of the first book or the tagline, the back page of the first book is, you know, a computer programmer sells a software company, is about to retire basically and enjoy life, gets hit by a bus, and then later on he's converted or digitized into an AI. And it's about his adventures as an AI, basically. Interesting. Okay. And there's four books of that, which I think it's pretty good. I, I would say it falls into like maybe the Andy Weir, you know, like with the Martian in terms of like the the writing of it's it's anchored in enough realist stuff, but yep. maybe the writing isn't as polished as some other stuff because you know this, this, this early on. I think it gets a little bit more polished, but um, I really like that. Yeah, I, I like it. They're they're a fun ride. The first three are really strong. Um, I think it was probably designed to be a trilogy originally so there you know there's pretty concluding storing lines in, in the third book but uh, the fourth book came out recently and i listened to it and i liked it very nice okay 
Uh, oh, I was, you asked me about what am I listening to? I'm, tr- I'm trying to get into Ernest Klein, the Ready Player One guy's book, Ready Player Two, the sequel mm-hmm. to that. I listened to the first few chapters. I'm on the fence right now of uh, how far okay. I'm going to go. So. Yeah, I didn't read Ready Player One until a few years ago. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it was okay. I thought it was okay. Uh, I mean, definitely. I mean, I'm sure it is a young adult book. Uh, but uh, I did see the movie as well on HBO. That was pretty pretty cool. The visuals of like all the different video game characters during the big uh, battle scene. I thought it was great. Yeah. But it, if if you like the pop culture element of Ready Player One or just like that, I mean, <laughs> which does resonate. Obviously, I'm making a podcast about hacking in the 90s, or half of it's about hacking in the 90s. So I'm I'm a little retro in in my taste of that that as well. The Bobaverse series do also include a lot of that. The guy was like a Star Trek, you know, head, and like so. There, there's a lot of pop culture stuff. Uh, okay, strewn in there too. All right. Well, uh, in terms of audiobooks, I myself have just finished War of the Worlds, uh, which was. Uh, pretty oh. good. Yeah. Did yeah. you listen to so the good. original radio play? <laughs> that, <laughs> no, that I did not. Confused for being a real invader. Yes. In fact, I actually had to Google that because I was like, this this freaking audiobook is eight hours long or something like that. So how long were people in front of this radio? And then I realized it was just, uh, you know, they did like a I don't know what you call oh, a radio play or something yeah, version of it play, just yeah. for an hour. Yeah. So H G Wells, famous. H G Wells. Yep. A big um, chunk of people probably have read this book. Right? Yeah. Yeah, probably. You know, then all during like the audiobook of it, I was just remembered like, didn't I see a Tom Cruise movie of this? And I was like, I completely forgot that Tom Cruise starred in a War of the Worlds movie in the early 2000s. Oh, is it's not Signs. I think in your head you confuse it with Signs, maybe. No, it's is Tom Cruise in Signs? No, he, Tom Cruise okay. was in a legit, like, H. Yeah, no, I know. Oh, oh okay. that, That's what uh, I was trying to think of, like, in my head, those two things blending. Uh, so I did that, and then I just started um, Bonfire of the Vanities on audiobook. So I'm doing that and uh, trying to finish an actual book called Geek Love, which is about a sideshow carnival family. Um, and just sort of all of their uh, relationships in the entire family are like sideshow freaks. So there's like, uh, you know, Artie the Turtle Boy and Siamese Twin Sisters, right? And like a um, hunchback, you know, person. Yeah, so a pretty, pretty hmm. interesting um, book. It's Apparently fictional. It was, it's fiction. Right? Yeah, it okay. was a runner-up for like the National Book Award or something like this. I feel like the book was published in the early '80s. I had never heard of it, but there is a little bookshop in Dallas that I like, and um, just saw it on the counter one day and picked it up. Uh, so it's been pretty good. I, I will once I should be finishing it up in the next couple of days or so. So I'll let you know if I actually recommend it. Okay, so- cool. sounds good. And and then you were mocking me a few weeks ago because I gave up on Dude. I. I, oh, I guess dude, all of yeah. this stuff we've been talking about, or a lot of it has been science fiction. I should say that I read a bunch of stuff and occasionally dip my toe in. And I think you accused me of not being a real science fiction reader when I <laughs> gave up on Dune. i sure I did not say that, although I have recently gone on a major science fiction kick within like maybe the last two years. Um, but you know what? I read Dune during quarantine. So uh, uh, Early quarantine, yeah. Yeah, early quarantine. And in fact, I actually, at, like... One of the books that was on that, you know, hundred best books that list that we went through, I actually read uh Ulysses by James Joyce, which I 
highly recommend no one ever do. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was just well, such a for, chore. For people who are, um, you know, uh, diehard science fiction people that hate me now because I gave up on Dune, I, I was trying to do it as an audiobook. And over the 21 hours of audiobook and being distracted by, you know, highway level driving situations, <laughs> I just could not keep track of all of the character storylines. Oh, like the thing is, it is a really uh, complicated narrative style. Yes. And, and there, exactly. There is a yeah. lot of internal monologuing done in that book. And I can't imagine how difficult that must be to come across on a radio or like you know audiobook and actually as i was reading dune the book i was watching the david lynch film like i, I would read a few chapters you know like a big a, a decent enough chunk where i could watch maybe like 20 minutes of the movie mm-hmm. and, and that's apparently a very bad movie making uh thing to do is just have voiceovers for what the characters are thinking and that movie is like 50 percent that <laughs> gotcha so, yeah, it was good though. Okay. I did enjoy Doom. So if you can finish it, if you're going to get back in the mood, I actually do recommend finishing. I Doom. think I'm Dune with it. Uh, see that the puns. Now you nailed it. Okay. Ah, okay. Uh, tying the icebreakers together between episodes. Who needs feedback? We got it. We're we're on a roll. Okay, Dennis. Psst. Psst. Yeah, Kev. Uh, I've got a secret. <laughs> Would you care to share it? Yeah, threat intelligence is a complete waste. Ooh, okay. You are going to upset some people. This is very- well. I thought I thought that I was going to upset some people, and I was like thinking about it. And I think if you care enough to disagree with me, then I'm probably not talking about you. Like, <clears throat> so we'll let's get into this. First of all, yeah, I think we all need. <clears throat> Sorry, adjusting my chair. We'll edit this out. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> I almost, the I almost died in. there. The audience will know oh, that I almost God. died in this uh, Herman Miller Aeron chair here. Uh, not to brag, got the Aeron. Um, <laughs> I, I think we need to establish some, like, disambiguate languages, right? Because a lot of language that we use on an everyday basis, I think you and I probably have a strong shared sense of this. But maybe because of that, maybe can you take a crack at, at uh, defining threat intelligence for folks and then we'll maybe talk about some other things that we're not ca- talking about just to be very clear. But w- what do you think I mean when I say threat intelligence? Okay. For, for me, I think threat intelligence is the communication, uh, uh, you know, of new vulnerabilities that are out there. Um, maybe high profile attacks that are happening. Um, and I shouldn't maybe limit it to high profile, right? But just, Hey, how are people actually getting attacked in maybe certain industries or whatnot um and uh so that you know basically you're taking this info you're updating what you're blocking you're updating maybe what you're looking for that that's how i think of it okay um yeah so i think that even within that definition there's some stuff maybe to touch on like you brought up new vulnerabilities well a big chunk of enterprises that are falling into this the space that we're going to talk about today obviously most of their vulnerabilities are like software being unpatched, right? So I'm I'm not saying that you shouldn't do good vulnerability analysis and there isn't an intelligence function of like, how do you get information on new uh, vulnerabilities, like concrete vulnerabilities? I'm not saying that that's bad at all. Obviously that's something you have to do. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so yeah, so this there's that vulnerability piece that that I I and also, you know, we have this other thing that we call threat modeling, which is really about, you know, validating that a design is resilient to a subset of specific threats and uh, threats in that definition being a combination of, you know, some type of attacker, some type of attack against your specific you know, implementation of something or design of something. And that I think is really useful. And there's the one piece here that I, that I think is disproportionately wasteful is when we try to get a bunch of real world data on who might attack us. Does that make sense? Yes. It makes sense to me. So now, and if you think that this isn't being done, I think the scale of this problem, or what I'm going to talk about of this problem, is very big. I, I would contend, and, and I mean, going on, off of where I've been, I've, 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 I'm going to theorize that if your company has a revenue of $1, $1 billion or more, there's like a team of five people working on threat intelligence. And I've talked to a bunch of those people. And I'm going to be critical of a subset of things that they're doing that I don't think add a ton of value. It's, it's, okay, well, I'm, I'm interested that frame to hear. It? Okay, so yeah, yeah, it frames it real well. So let's uh, let's dive into some of these, you know, maybe low return on investment according to you. Yeah, um, and and I'll, I'll remind me before we stop talking about this that I'll, I'll give to you why I think that this has taken off in the last 10 years. I think this, this is something that's emerged really in the last 10 years um, and definitely a, a top-down driven, like I think this started at executive level type of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'll talk about why it was broke. So, so okay, there's a couple of th- reasons that I, I think this is broken. One, we know so much more about our attack surface in terms of like, or, or in that data is so much easier to um, let me introduce some terms. So I like to think about things as managed risk, which is risks that we've, we know about. So we are vulnerable to these types of things, right. Or these specific things. So that's yes. managed risk. Cause we know about them, but you also have a bunch of unmanaged risk, which is risk that you haven't found out about yet. Right. So we live in these two worlds. And even if you, you know, you might have managed risks that you've not yet remediated. And as soon as you remediate it, you know, the risk isn't there anymore. So that's kind of my, a, a bit of calibration on the language there. So within this, Conversion of unmanaged to managed risk space, converting risks like defect discovery, we talked about threat modeling, like concrete problems with your design, is so much a better return on investment because every hour that you spend doing that, you're going to find real things that are you know, very concrete and very actionable. I think the key problem with threat intelligence is how inactionable it can be, right? Oh, we know that this person out there might attack us. Well, what do we do? You know, I mean, we can, you mentioned some things like improving monitoring or something like that, right? And those might be realistic if you had data on a specific type of attack vector. But 
there's a downside to that, which is you're making a, maybe even an intelligent guess to say, okay, that threat's going to attack us using this type of thing. You're going to divert a bunch of resources to fix maybe that exact thing. Mm-hmm. But what if you have a more simple or more concrete? And in my, the thing that I've learned probably the most over time is that attackers follow a path of least resistance, mm-hmm. right? So if you go out and focus on what you think might be a complicated, oh, they're going to abuse this type of vulnerability, or if you focus on anything specific, and that's not the thing that's easy, easiest for an attacker to leverage to, to, to um, you know, exploit, gain, gain access to whatever the, the situation is, it's, it's, a, it's a moot thing. It's just a distraction, right? <laughs> so if... And if you just know who that are, there's other things, games that people try. Okay, well, what's their skill level? That, I think, is a dangerous thing that we try to presume, right? <laughs> is whenever I see a, you know, a vulnerability severity skill or, or some type of complexity factor that tries to presume knowledge that's, and, and factor into your risk rating, mm-hmm. that, I think, becomes like security by obscurity. And you see a lot of people get get hurt by that in the long run right like so it it works it works quote unquote works for a long time like proprietary network protocols it was a it was is whatever is it is you know in in like mm, embedded device space i'll I'll say i won't zero in on a particular industry but you know you've got this big machine that does something that's maybe even very important and you rely on the unique architect network or communications architecture to protect it or something like that that works for a long time until it doesn't <laughs> right so right. um so you know knowing things about your attacker is a very limited value when you can spend so, like your time is so much better spent both finding like converting unmanagers to managers by finding problems and then as we talked about last week generalize the best return on investment and the way you can fix problems with the best uh impact is to be sure to generalize those issues do the root cause analysis necessary to say like how can i avoid those problems for coming back into my you know it's a it's a process escape i have a process to build something and every defect or every security issue found with it i'm going to treat as a failure of my process and I'm going to try to avoid those in the future. That I think is key. That I think nobody is spending a lot of time on uh, or not much time on. And then this threat intelligence thing is uh, is one of the things competing, the the opportunity cost of doing threat, threat intelligence, for one of the things kind of competing from this other thing. So that's why I think it's wasteful. I guess my th- premise was it's a complete waste. It's a waste in terms of opportunity cost of things that will drive more value. Now, um. Where where do you think? Uh, so let me oh, let me ask you this. Yeah, when I hear this, go ahead. <clears throat> the the crux of the argument this time, I feel like, is that they stop short of um, making this this uh, info actionable, right? So you're saying, okay, okay these people yes. are attacking us. They might be of said skill level. There's your info, right? I, now, does your opinion change if they're like? Okay, here's the group. You know, they're highly skilled fact, you know, highly skilled attackers, you know, whatever. Um and they are known for doing these types of things, right? Is that does that make it actionable enough for your team to go out and and like you said maybe see, hey, do we have managed risk that overlaps with their common attack, you know, scenarios I, or what do you think about that? I I think that there's some competing 
even with the scenario you described, which I think is very common, but I think that there's competing or there's contradictory things within that, right? If you have an advanced group, then they are going to tailor their attack to your particular organization. So they're not going to come with a very repeatable uh, MO of replaying the same. Now, an advanced group that's not doing, you know, they're that what I would characterize as opportunistic. They're going to run the same type of attack on all financial services companies, which we saw in, um, you know, like the 2012, 2013 uh, DDoS attacks against financial services. We saw that and we did have actionable intelligence on that um, to say, okay, they're going to use this particular type of attack pattern. And, you know, we were able, I, I was a part of that response effort um, and we were able to do some some good things with that to make it a little bit easier. But I would say if we had done the threat modeling and invested the right amount of time into shoring up our resiliencies to some easy types of, of denial of service vectors ahead of time, it wouldn't even been necessary to use that intelligence. We would have been fine. I, I totally agree with you uh, in that scenario. I've you know, experienced something similar myself, right? Hey, we've been warned that this people were going to attack us, you know, and it's like, okay, great. You know, do you, what is your outstanding risk? Mm, we don't know. Okay. Well, let's start there. Right. Like, so or we do argument. know, but we don't care because we're going to try to guess what the attacker, this is the yeah. dangerous behavior that is like, okay, wasteful is one thing, but here's a dangerous behavior. I'm going to focus my defense in this, like energy ball, the sprint, I think I'm going to get intact by that person who's going to do this. You're making so many guesses in that scenario that the one time it like just works and you actually, you know, uh, do that is of very limited value compared to all the risk you're taking on when you probably know and have, I mean, you should know your, your, um, your weaknesses, your risk, you should have an understanding of what a skilled attacker is more most likely. Or you have people in your organization that you've probably been ignoring, <laughs> you know, that have a better sense of how to break that break into that firm or whatever the, the attack that you're focused on is going to be than any the highest level skill outside attacker. Um, just because they 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 have access to so much more information about it and so much more history and so you know and and the data so my my thing is you should basically there is one little link here to say like your threat modeling should have really good attacker profiles which can be described as for me, it's just a mapping of your trust boundaries, right? So we've got, uh, you know, this interior barrier that we're, you know, okay, these database guys have access to this. We've got, you know, and if you do that well, I think it almost, it almost uh, precludes any need to think about what a particular attacker is because then you could just map, well, okay, they're this profile. So let's just make sure that um, like maybe they have physical access to a brick and mortar, you know, thing at a retail place. Well, let's consider that profile of somebody who has access to that building. And then we can stop with this, like guessing what they're going to do type of thing. Like the, you know, we've threat modeled it. We can go on more concrete data. Yeah. And I would say that, you know, I'm not sure if I've ever heard of anyone when in their threat modeling, they're like, okay, the threat actor is going to be this group. And then we'll do another pass where we pretend to be this group, right? It's usually more about, the position in the network or ecosystem, right? And the level of access that, they, that they've got, 
Right. So yeah, and and there's so let's let's propose a a tweak to say if you're gonna go to or if you're gonna go to the effort of collecting a bunch of data on real world threats, uh, linking it to your threat modeling process and informing and managing and updating the profiles of those attackers. I do think is really important. Like if you're going to do it, that's one of the value disconnects that that we see. We see a whole bunch of people doing this th- this uh, threat intelligence activity and it's not getting into the threat modeling process. So that's one way that I think that you know you could make it less of a waste um, and, and improve it. Now here's when you when you ask about that, uh, you get a very common response from managers, department leads, and things that run threat intelligence groups. When, when you ask about, you know, how are you sharing your data with others uh, in order, you know, to make it more actionable from them? Do you want to guess at the, at the others? Do you know what, which one I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to poke at? That they keep it for themselves? That, that it's, Why do they keep it from, them, for themselves? Uh, because it's need-to-know information? Exactly. That idea, that's, this is one of the fundamental things that's broken, is that these are secrets, Right. And they can't tell people about them because they're such they're so important of secrets. I mean, I started a podcast called Shared Secrets, so I don't care about secrets. But I also think that these big enterprises should largely not care about keeping secrets. Like, I mean, what is the information that's being secret? You know, I, I, the one case that you could maybe make is if, if it's about a new type of vulnerability that you're informed, you know, by a vendor or something about early, maybe you have an obligation, you, you probably have some type of obligation or some type of contractual thing not to go public with that. But within an enterprise, so much of the value is lost because the threat intelligence people think everything they do is so secretive that it just goes nowhere. So you just collect it. Like they're just, Hoarding all this information that is probably not that actionable, um, but is definitely not that actionable if nobody ever hears about it. So, yeah. and uh, yeah, I mean, because that's a big tenant of DevOps, right? Is and, setting up institutional learning, right? And so, if you have yeah. pieces of your organization actively working against that, you know, it's it's tough because that's a fundamental. That was, I think, like one of the three pillars of this uh, of the of DevOps and DevSecOps. Yes. Okay, so now let's talk about th- because this has taken off having these big teams, you know, I, and you know, <laughs> negative indicators like trip words for me in in this whole scenario, like threat hunting, right? <laughs> or uh, <laughs> like that's one, but there's there's kind of like indicators that I know. Okay, well, this is not, not really making much of an impact. Um, I, I just want to talk a little bit about the scale and history. I mean, I, I think I mentioned. Uh, you know, if your revenue is over a billion, you know, probably have a team of four or five people. I see like this, this activity of collecting threat intelligence and doing all this work. I see it at firms that really should not be doing it. You know, like hmm. enterprises that have a very consistent threat profile of every other, you know, corporate enterprise out there, like the people that aren't doing unique things. Like maybe there's edge cases there of, we're a unique technology firm that does this, or we're in a supply chain of this that you have to consider different types of threats, you know, but if you're an ex retailer and you're, you've got a 10 person team that you're spending millions of dollars on to collect threat intelligence, that's pretty much going nowhere. That is wasteful. But, um, do you have any idea? Like if I, if I'm contending it's so wasteful or whatever, do you have any, 
what are your what are your guesses or what's your opinion as to why these things started? Well, I think that they are, you know, it, like if you find something, you're just like, oh my gosh, yes, this totally justified it, right? So, you know, we we did our threat hunting exercise, and yes, we identified a threat, and then you're just like, oh, okay, great, but. Um, I think what's not being noticed is what you said, right? Is like, okay, well, we spent a lot of time, we were hunting and pecking around and we, and we did find this thing. Um, but what was the opportunity cost lost by not, you know, mm. basically doing r- the regular vulnerability management or cataloging your managed risks and making informed decisions on how to move that or, or, or excuse me, unmanaged to managed. Right. Um, so I think that, you know, that might that might be a reason why um, you see a toehold there. I mean, I think it is like the threat hunting in particular, um, uh, you know, there is a place for it, right? Like in maybe like a post-breach activity um, or phase, um, but maybe it shouldn't be the sole defense. I think the specialization. Yeah, I I mean, I think if you're a research firm out there, um, you know, that's going to curate data and do things like inform IDS detection rule sets and, um, you know, use, I've, I've seen value in IP reputation data, right? So augmenting perimeter defenses with, um, you know, maybe additional verbosity on dangerous IPs that might come in from, from some type of reputation. So I think all that has a value. I'm just saying like, um, you know, most of, and, and okay, I, you, you actually got, uh, pretty close to it. I'm just going to, um, state a uh maybe a more direct version or i i want you to 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 listen to what i have to say and kind of compare that against the 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 opportunity cost thing that you just mentioned i believe that these threat intelligence efforts are a direct reaction to the boardroom right so you have cso's out there that when you look at the books the metrics the risk registers the activities they're struggling to do what should be the general good security hygiene stuff, like patching our servers, writing good fire, like all the all of the stuff that they should be ma- moving the bar on. For some reason, in mind, it's probably not the CISOs. I mean, it's a, it's the organization as a whole is not succeeding at those things. So, threat intelligence allows you to kind of set everything aside, do something new, and then reframe your boardroom discussions in a way that seems like you're a lot more actionable and effective, right? So let's say that I can't get the servers patched in my enterprise. I'm really struggling because my CTO and my CIO and um, the dev managers, it's, it's just really hard to move the bar on you know, making software more secure or patching servers, what, all those common problems that we have every day. Well, let me just dial in this radio knob of threat intelligence, and I'm going to learn about four things a week that we can go out and SWAT team real quick and then tell the board, okay, we have a threat intelligence-driven program. Here are the threats we learned about, and here is our status against those threats. And it completely changes the conversation in the boardroom that makes you seem like you're doing awesome. But it didn't move the bar on all of the that security debt that you had. Mm-hmm. Um, you you just get away from that conversation. 
So I think it's a tactic that's starting at the boardroom, coming from the CISO level. It's also influenced by, I think, a lot of incident responders who are bored of being incident responders. And there's also this market. Um, and I, I, I love, uh, you know, I, I am a big supporter of, uh, uh, of armed services people, veterans who, who, who contribute to that. I, I want them to succeed. But there's people that come out of the military intelligence uh, and in you know military um, you know computer intelligence type of functions that have this skill that maybe seems interesting or marketable. So there's a a uh, pool of of resources to draw on. And actually, I think that's an amplifying factor of the the notion of the need to know stuff is that people coming from those back rooms. So no, nothing against those people. Uh, I love you guys. I, I think that I just want to see an evolution of this threat intelligence process to be more impactful. And I think um, maybe just to recap, the, I'll state some key ways that I think it can get better. And you can comment on that is, so for from making sure that people who are building controls are are able to process, use the data, and build more resilient controls. That, I think, is a key thing. So some general statement about actionability, I think, is huge. I think you're, you're the thing you mentioned about tailoring and increasing um, you know, monitoring in a general way is really good. And then the third thing we haven't talked about at all that I think where threat intelligence could be the most impactful is not necessarily on that computer security side we typically think about, but on um, the resilience of business logic to fraud. I think fraud is a ripe space where threat intelligence and the 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 modus operandi of somebody abusing the business logic or or logic of your enterprise. I do think that that's the right spot for this type of function. Um, you know, so any type of of uh common criminal uh threads of of uh you know patterns of of how they're abusing scams types of things that um you know are are a little bit more concrete to pattern and then making your business logic more resilient to those things. Probably something we could all get better at. So what, what do you think? Uh, I definitely agree with the fraud comment. I think that there, um, <clears throat> we probably could be doing or, uh, a little bit more uh, in the software security space to address fraud. Um, but uh, I think it's just sort of, you know, it's not a big, it's something that everyone of the business, you know, businesses ex- expect and they budget for, right? So unless it becomes a big bookkeeping nightmare, right? Like you're, it's going way over. It's just sort of the cost of doing business. And they, I'm not sure how much is really being done to lessen that. Um, I have seen, you know, to go back to your other point. So I, you know, I, I have seen some places that have been doing this and do keep that traceability along the way to make sure that things get actionable, right? So the mapping of, okay, well, we are going to be worried about the the group, the specific groups that attack, you know, us and those like us in our industry, you know, this is how they're doing it. We are putting this information in a way that's consumable by the folks that we're trusting to protect us from that. Not only, let's say, networking blue teams, but also, like you mentioned, people building security controls and people building uh, the business logic of their core applications. Um, and then seeing them take it, you know, one step further and saying, hey, you know, we are going to be pretending to be this type of group and we are going to be, you know, uh, like attacking you. Um, and I think that that's kind of a good, you know, uh, comp- you know, a good meet in the middle where it's like we are going to, yes, be 
pretending to be uh, a particular actor, which I know that you're maybe not so sold on, but I feel like at least they're, you know, trying to see, you know, Hey, are, are the normal blocking and tackling of our blue teamers? Is that, uh, is that up to snuff or, or the folks, you know, like the security control architects or whatever? Um, yeah. How is it actually, you know, how, how we care about this attacking group. Are we actually do, taking the steps to, uh, to pr- defend ourselves against what they would be doing? So I, I think that, but that- yeah, I mean, just to emphasize, like not in such a specific way, like one final example, and then I'm going to ask you for, for your, uh, your rating. Yes. But one final example of like when you hear about a piece of intelligence about a particular firm getting broken into with something very specific. And the example that I this is a real world thing I heard about. So, you know, this other firm that's similar to our type was compromised using hard-coded credentials in source code that was leaked on a, you know, Git repository somewhere, right? I think that that is has happened a lot, mm-hmm. um, you know, with tokens or whatever. And then the reaction, and, and it was in particular, the, the, the one I'm thinking about was like, in particular it was VB script. So what was the response? And I had a couple buddies that got pulled into and they were asked, I, we need you guys to, on an emergency basis, audit the source code repositories for hard coded credentials in VB script. Like, not generalized at all. Like, what does it matter? Like, what if we have hard-coded credentials in, uh, in, in a JavaScript that gets, you know, distributed to client? Like, yeah. all, all, you know, it, it's such a specific response that it's of no value. Now, here's the kicker for that story. The answer was, we found some. And you know what happened next? Uh, tell me. No, I'm on the edge of my seat, though. They couldn't get him fixed. <laughs> Why? The business, it was too, co- you know, oh, it, was like the business break. was just okay. like, oh, uh, you know, <laughs> like they actually just couldn't do the easy thing again. We spent all this work to find this stuff mm-hmm. and they still couldn't move the bar on mm-hmm. uh, closing the, the loop on those things. So, okay. So uh, I think, uh, thank you, Dennis, for, for listening to me rant about that. Um, I, how much do you believe this to be true on a scale of zero to 10? Uh, how much did I convince you that threat intelligence is a complete waste? <laughs> I will say you have convinced me at a confidence level of, I think I'm going to go with a five on this one. Ooh. I know it's a little tough. It's a it's a tough grade because is I it because think- I use the word complete. Is that <laughs> if I was like, oh, this is a general okay? Well, um, no, I think I I think it's common, right? I think the, the your your statement, of course, very controversial, was very generalized, and I think the the reason was just like they're not taking it. You know, most people aren't taking it further enough, right? Because like they're not going to. Uh, okay. Ma- mapping things I, being actionable. I I at least got the things I wanted to get out there. Yeah. Out there. Um, yeah. I sent a. Uh, I didn't send you a virtual envelope this time, but if you check your signal, you'll see. Okay, I'm I'm grabbing my phone right here. There. Ooh. Okay. 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 So. <laughs> oh my gosh! I believe this to be nine true. 
Yeah. I, and, so, and oh. mostly on just how the scale of it for me, uh, of just how much of the stuff is being done and how little of an impact it's, it's making where, you know, you work in some spaces that you feel are really important in, uh, you know, even within the computer security scope or whatever. And then you see this big, you know, expensive thing happening that what does it accomplish? So that that's kind of why I take umbrage and believe that to be nine true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that All was right. our widest gap yet. So not, yeah, not, we're getting, uh, we're oscillating. We'll we are definitely us. Yes. So, well, maybe okay. next time, Kev, we'll go for, we'll go for a zero, you know, difference next time. Negative. No, ne- next time I got to get negative four or maybe negative six. Anyway, nobody's doing the math except for me. All right. Uh, <laughs> this week's throwback segment. So uh, this week we talked to uh, Joel Scambre, um, who I met like in 2008. I went to work for him on some projects uh, at uh, his startup consultancy that he was getting off the ground at the time. Uh, most people would know Joel because he's like a prolific author. Like he's he's on uh, pretty much all, I think, of the Hacking Exposed books. He's one of the primary authors. So there's like 15 books in the Hacking Exposed series. And one of the nicest things Joel ever did for me was mention my name in the thank you credits of uh, one of them. I think it was the web application hacking one, uh, one of the editions of that at least. So, um, But Joel and I talk about the early days of security consultancy um, some of his work, uh, well, we talked about his college years, how he made the transition into, uh, information security, which is very different. So I didn't grow up with Joel, but the, one of the things that I, I liked about his story was he actually got into this stuff from, um, you know, from a, from a different angle. So we talk about his work at Inforworld, Ernst & Young, um, some Foundstone and Microsoft stories. So always love listening to, to Joel tell stories. All right, Joel, so happy to have you on. Hey, great to be here. Great to, uh, to talk to you, Kevin. It's, uh, it's been a little while, and we've sort of pass, crossed paths a few times in, in our careers, and it's really exciting to, to be here to talk to you. Yeah, this, is, this, has been a, this one's going to be a bit of a departure from the, the ones I've done so far because I've mostly been talking to people I was friends with in the 90s doing you know, mischief with computers uh, in in high school and and stuff like that. I I wanted to connect with you um, specifically. One, I love hearing you tell stories, but two, I wanted to get a a perspective from somebody who, um, you know, was in the information security world kind of at that ground level, right? Like, so from my perspective, I don't even think full-time, you know, computer security, information security people were a thing until you know this late 90s period right that's the same time i've been kind of talking to my friends about i mean system admins network admins you know even all the books that were written back there you know cuckoo's egg and takedown it's all about people doing security as a second job and and i think you're one of the the people i know that was um that you know early on took on computer as as kind of a full-time computer security as kind of a full-time endeavor so wanted to connect with with you but before we jump into that i've been trying to guess my my friends computers when i when i first met them uh we didn't meet until 2008 so it was you know it's a, that's a pretty boring question you probably had some you know corporate hp laptop or something like that but do you have any interesting first computers that you want to share with kind of the the uh the audience oh man you know, I'm going to date myself already out of the gate here. Uh, you know, I, I actually started out as a Mac guy, uh, you know, back back when that, that was, uh, you know, less cool than it is today and, and, and much less compatible with the rest of the world. You know, the Internet has sort of leveled the playing field here. And, 
you know, iPhones and and uh, and and Macs are running, you know, Unix now for Pete's sake. It's it's nice. uh, it used to be quite different. I, I had uh, uh, a couple of the sort of one piece, uh, you know, Apple uh, mm -hmm. uh, sort of word processing machines is the best thing I could describe it as, and you know, had the pleasure of trying to to fix uh, components in them a few times. Those things were packed together really tight. Uh, and uh, it's much much a challenge just to get it apart and back together again and all packed in there uh, as it was to actually fix stuff uh, like the hard drives and things like that. So nice. I, I did you do any? Surprised you? <laughs> <laughs> did you do any? Well, my my first computer was a IBM eighty eighty eight. I was just uh, you know I was four and my, and my dad brought it home. But um, did you do any dial you know BBS stuff or anything like that in the in the eighties nineties? No, uh, you know, the, my first sort of online stuff was when I was at UCLA in grad school. You know, I, I was a biology guy. I didn't get into computers until late. So that would have been sort of mid-90s, mid uh, you know, and UCLA was one of the first nodes on the Internet. So they were kind of hooked up already, and it was you know, off into, you know, uh, 14 kilobaud modems and, you know, mm -hmm. Ethernet on the campus uh, even. So, yeah, so uh, that's that's it. That follows in right into. I, I wanted to ask you this because I know you went to to college for for biology and and grad school for like molecular biology, right? Uh, that's right. Yeah. So uh, late late bloomer. So <laughs> <in> how? <computing>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How how did that happen? How what what was the motivation and and uh, how did you gravitate towards uh to being I I were you were you ever in just technology or did you start right away in, in security? Well, go, going back even farther, I was not in technology. I, I was a, an English major uh, in in college, and then oh, okay. I, I ended up for some reason, you know, taking more math and science. Uh, I'm not, still not sure how that happened. Uh, I think my roommate was a was a uh, an electrical engineer, uh, and and I, I don't know whether it was sort of just you know. Uh, uh, being in the same room and sort of, you know, inclined towards the same classes, but uh, wound up majoring in biology uh, uh, and minoring in English uh, and then sort of uh, decided to, to continue to go, you know, uh, uh, genetic engineering, molecular biology was pretty hot then, this again, early 90s. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it was pretty exciting space. You know, I think now we're, we're talking about PCR tests with COVID nowadays, and I've actually done PCR, right? Polymerase chain reaction. <laughs> Uh, you know, back on the bench in my, my days at, as an intern uh, uh, in undergrad and, and certainly as a graduate student did a bunch of that stuff, uh, running gels. And it was really cool. So that, so that kind of pushed me more to technology. And, and then it gotcha. started to become Go ahead, Sorry, you, you were going to say something. Well, no. So it was just in that field you were you were then engaging more and more with technology and the internet as a tool to communicate and just kind of gravitate or interest in that or just how yeah how did you make the the transition to then you know I, I, you never actually you went to school for molecular biology but your your career was always focused on technology right yeah it was really in grad school where you know it became much more computationally centric right I mean uh, genetic sequencing. Uh, protein folding, and you know, I spent time on the VAX at, at, at uh, UCLA or one of the two or three they had there. Uh, running VMS uh, or running Unix? VMS, uh, yeah. Oh, okay. So yeah, so not that, even that anything cool. that's still useful. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, so, so and then the internet, of course, to, to your point, was was really taken off. And, and that, you know, distracted me. I, I you know, uh, knock on wood, managed to finish my degree 
uh, and promptly uh, got a job as, a, as an IT administrator in the LA area and, and was off to the races uh, in, in computing. So that, that was an gotcha. interesting career, uh, uh, you know, divergence. So then security started to, to pop into the picture in that IT job or, or before that, did you, like I, I, most of my friends have admitted to, uh, to doing a bit of, of hacking here or there so far. Was there any of that on your radar? I guess you were probably a little bit more uh, mature than we were just, just having a, a little bit more life experience at the time. Yeah. I, I mean, it's funny, you know, you're, you're taking me back here. I've had a few turns in the career. How did I get into security? I, I was probably more on the, the defensive side, again, IT administrator, mm-hmm. you know, keeping keeping things up and not breaking them down was, was the main focus. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, answered a, a help wanted ad or, or in the back of, of info world magazine, they were actually hiring analysts, uh, to come, come to their test center and, and, and test products. I thought that sounds cool. And uh-huh. actually, you know, responded to the, the, the ad in the back and went up, I was still in LA and, and went up and interviewed, uh, in the Bay area where, where info world, is still based. I think they're still around San Mateo and mm-hmm. got the job, packed the family into the back of a U-Haul. Uh, you know, the, the first kid was born at, at UCLA and, uh, you know, she, uh, she took to, uh, uh, to the Bay area, like a duck to water, almost literally. We had these huge geese that, that were, that flocked around our apartment complex. And she used to love to go out in the morning and chase the geese around. <laughs> uh, and then InfoWorld is, is where I, I met a couple of my, you know, lifelong collaborators, uh, Stuart McClure and, and, and George Kurtz later indirectly. Uh, but, uh, and that, that, that sort of led to uh, hacking exposed and, and security. I think one of the first things they asked me to do there was to review uh, VPN products. And so that, that kind of, uh, kind of got me into security and, uh, you know, just sort of was personally enthralled by it. and. Uh, did a bunch of research and reading of sort of the classic stuff, you know, Dan Farmer and and Chris Klaus uh-huh. and, and you know Satan ISS ISS and this is uh, you know really really got into it. What's super interesting to me is like your career gravitated, you know, and you were you your um you know predilection towards like an English major, right? Like your ability to communicate, your write, your interest in it sounds like you know, in in authoring articles for for a magazine was was actually kind of what pivoted you into this entirely new world, right? Like this kind of groundbreaking space of computer computer security. Yeah, I think that's right. And and right. I guess that still remains kind of my uh, you know, my, my uh, uh, position in, in the industry uh, is, you know, it, it's, a, it's a complex topic. It's a technical topic. It, it, it's nuanced, e- even philosophically, right? Risk management, right? You know, should you do this or should you do that? You know, it's, it's a, about informing a, a choice. And, you know, that, I, I think that's been, that was the pull and, and remains kind of the, the centerpiece for me is, you know, even to this day, you know, I'm, I'm still a consultant and mm-hmm. uh, managed consultants as well. Uh, and, and that, that is where I, I tend to thrive and, and enjoy uh, the, the industry still is, is explaining and, or, or talking and advising people on risk, right. Uh, mm-hmm. Communicating it. So one of the, the things that I'm, I'm interested or like my theory, and sometimes I, I, I say this to other people of, of, you know, the development of applicate application security as a specialized field. Um, you know, 
in the 90s, we were all running the same software, right? Like we all, when when somebody found a problem with SendMail, we all fixed SendMail. When somebody mm-hmm. found a, a bug in Bind, we all fixed Bind. You know, the web and web application and dynamic web applications started creating all this new attack surface. And and I think you you were really in, on the ground level, you know, and, and Foundstone was one of the the, the first firms, uh, and you were a founder of, of Foundstone, was one of the first firms I remember like specializing and doing, you know, software security audits of, of web applications and those enterprise applications that people were developing. Is that is that a good characterization or do you want to talk a little bit more if, about kind of the... Uh, the next step of, of kind of pivoting, you, you've got those collaborators, you're, you're working on the book, but it, what was the next step? What, how did Foundstone come to be? Yeah, I think you, you've done your, your research. I, I think that is another sort of pivotal moment was the, 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 the product security, application security pivot at Foundstone. And, you know, again, it, I, I'm trying to think back. It, it was perhaps somewhat accidental in that you know, I ended up working for, uh, you know, uh, uh, an important client of the firm back then, uh, a very large software development company, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, sort of got immersed in that, right? They, they were very interested in, in you know, uh, improving the trustworthiness of their products, right, software applications. And, and it sort of got me to see... Uh, you know, as you pointed out, that this was an even more interesting space, right? The, I, I guess I, I, I always think of myself as growing up as a network pen tester, right? You know, hacking servers and like you said, send mail, kind of the make and model problem, right? You know, if, if you figured out what make and model it was, somebody had built an exploit and you could go sort of replay that and, uh, you know, uh, 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 do some damage, right? Whereas application security was much more challenging. So somebody wrote something custom, and you had to go figure out how it worked, and you know the endless variability of programming languages and approaches and designs and implementations was was uh, always a very uh, challenging thing. That's fascinated me to this day. It's kind of where my career has has uh, remained after I jumped into that space. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's awesome. So uh, now with that, there was a bunch of uh, personalities, I mean, brilliant people, but also kind of extreme personalities um, back in the day, because, you know, those, those kind of, you, people who could figure that out tended at that time to break the mold in more than one way. So I assume there's, there's maybe a, an interesting story or, or two from, from kind of the, the, the late nineties at, at any of these firms or any that, that maybe you, uh, you might want to share. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll go back and fill in a puzzle piece too. You know, at, at InfoWorld, you know, we, we kept getting deeper and deeper into security. I started writing a column with, with Stuart on security every week. And that was a big forcing function, right. To, you know, Again, back to writing and communication, you know, you're on deadline every week. You had to think of something interesting to, to say and it forced you to think about it. And, you know, that, that got George Kurtz's attention. I remember, you know, he wrote us, he was at, I think, PwC. Uh, and then we, we all ended up at Ernst & Young together, sort of, again, in the network pen test uh, uh, group there, uh, sort of a, describe it broadly. It was more than that, but mm-hmm. that's basically what we were doing and having a great time breaking into you know, big corporate clients. Uh, Did it have a cool of, name like the uh, where I was working in the early two thousands? It was the Cyber Attack Tiger Team. Did did your your group have a similarly fun name, or was it just Network Pentest? Yeah, I mean George uh, and Stuart and and Eric Schultz uh, was was uh, in, involved in. 
you know, one of the other co-founders of Foundstone, uh, mm-hmm. and, and they were much better at, at the, the branding. I think we had extreme hacking was the training that, that, uh, that Eric, uh, and, and the, and, and guys built. And, uh, there was, there was some fun stuff there. They're definitely fun times. And, you know, again, it, it, you know, a little, little bit of luck, you know, a lot of focus on infrastructure pen testing at that point. And, and I, I guess that might be one story. I can be, remember a, a big pen test at Ernst & Young, and we were in, oh, I think it was the, one of the Silicon Valley offices, and eight or ten of us sitting around. I think Stuart was was on the team, and we were doing a remote pen test of a large company, and you know we were breaking into remote access servers, like 3Com dial-up routers, right? And mm-hmm. you know we'd kind of get in, and then we'd start cruising around the internal network, and you know, we would find external web websites, you know, very primitive in that day, you know, port 80 and sort of, you know, uh, point and click kind of shopping cart kind of things. And you could still do the, you know, buy a product and, and edit the HTML to zero dollars and get away with that kind of stuff. And it, I, I, the funny part of the story was I remember that being kind of ignored, right? You know, oh, there's a web server. Yeah, ignore it. We're going to go try to get on the internal <laughs> network and, you know, break into all the Windows servers and Nobody you know, puts anything it, it, important on the web server. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, you know, exactly. It's it's almost kind of the mirror opposite of what it is today where, you know, oh, the web server, the database, the applications are kind of where all the the logic and the, the you know, the, the valuable information, the credit cards, all that stuff is. And, and mm-hmm. then it was sort of kind of almost ignored, right? Nobody was 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 putting a lot of stock in those things yet, right? But what, 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 what we didn't know at the time. So... You know, not, not, I mean, just to throw some names out, right, you know, guys like Jeremiah Grossman, right, were, were foundational in helping pivot that, right? You know, I mean, if you think of a guy that founded White Hat, and I still remember mm-hmm. seeing him speak at conferences, and amazing as it sounds, being a little bit of a voice in the wilderness saying, you know, hey, web apps are going to be the thing, guys, trust me, right? And, and you know, uh, he, he was definitely right uh, about that. Yeah, I, uh, I know that actually the person who gave me Hacking Exposed as a book was uh jeff williams from aspect so he w- he worked for exodus and he was doing a tour where he would come to our offices and do little uh security training and uh you know as part of that the company bought us all <laughs> your your book so that was like 2001 2002 but um yeah which he went on obviously to be to be another one of those guys too yeah yeah jeff i uh you know obviously a, a big proponent of the application space you know OWASP and uh, contrast now and, you know, pushing the envelope there with, uh, you know, I asked and rasp and, and, uh, you know, pushing, pushing the frontiers farther out. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, um, boy, you, you, you're, you're interesting personalities. I think the other thing, uh, I'm jumping around here, but, but, uh, uh, you know, one of, one of my other, uh, favorite, uh, claims to, or brushes with fame, I guess I should say, in, in my career is that at InfoWorld, Stuart and I ran into Julian Assange, uh, later, <laughs> much, much later of WikiLeaks fame and other, I guess, oh in, infamy. I'm not sure what people's opinions there, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when he, uh, he was originally famous for writing a, a, a TCP IP scanning tool, I want to say, my memory's failing me here, but a uh, pretty well-known, you know, uh, hacker mm-hmm. tool on the internet. And, I remember having an email exchange with him back back in those days, right? Much different, right? It was uh, pretty cool. 
Yeah. I, I sometimes describe you as kind of the, the Kevin Bacon of information security. And there's only one degree. You just, you just asked Joel for the introduction. Yeah, six um, degrees the- from everybody, right? Yeah. <laughs> which, which, I, I mean, I, and I, I, I chuckle, but, you know, thank you. That's actually a compliment. I, I think it's, you know, looking back at almost 25 years of this, it's, it's the people that, that I've, I've really uh, appreciated the most, right? Uh, uh, you know, it, it is, it's, it's been a wild ride. And, and it, it was the, the relationships and the people that, that have been the most rewarding part. Absolutely. Any, any more stories about uh, the, you know, early projects at Foundstone or, um, you know, anything, any other kind of pivotal moments in this kind of uh, late 90s to early 2000s is, is kind of our targeted area of this, um, you, you know, this, this throwback uh, podcast project? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, continuing the arc of the story, you know, I, I ended up going to work for that big software company. Uh, you know, I guess I'll, I'll name them now. It's if people know I worked for Microsoft for, for about five. That led to a five-year odyssey there. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, as I like to say, I consulted for them for five years, worked for them for five years, and then consulted for them again for another five years. So, it's, <laughs> you know, again, that was very uh, formational to me is, again, the, the, the importance of software uh, uh, even then. And, and now I think it's, it's just almost so cliche to say that, you know, software is eating the world, right? The, uh, the Mark Andreessen statement from 2013, you know, it's, I, I think that that certainly was pressing in and, and now it almost looks like it's maybe it was an underestimate, right? I mean, everything right. runs on software, you know, phones, cars, <laughs> you know, nuclear plants, you, you name it, you know, IOT device, uh, du jour. And, uh, I- you know, I, I think it's put, put me at the, you know, by uh, good fortune, I think at the center of the cybersecurity conversation. Uh, yeah, a couple couple of things. Just to, I mean, this time period being in information security at Microsoft, a couple of I think relevant things maybe touch on um, that that I'm curious about. Uh, the the first one being um, Microsoft's integration of software into the secure development lifecycle, like yeah. that. The Microsoft SDL was a was a big, very kind of public thing that was happening. Maybe a little bit outside of our throwback time, but you know, what what did that look like from from the inside perspective? Yeah, I'm glad you said that. I mean, you you can't say you know SDL without saying Michael Howard, Steve Lipner, Dave LeBlanc, and and many other folks. You know, I, I mean, so many people that I worked with there had the privilege of working with. Uh, directly, Adam Showstack. Uh, you know, I, I could go on for another twenty mm-hmm. minutes just just listing the names. Uh, Greg Wood. Uh, you know, uh, it, you know that that was a you know again a, a, a stroke of luck, right right place at the right time. That that was the the, the fermenting uh, vat for for security and development. Uh, you know, as as we all know now in hindsight, you know, Michael and 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 Steve published SDL. Uh, writing secure code with David Blanc, and and those remain the Bible today. And uh, M- Michael lives here in Austin. Uh, I haven't seen him in a little while, but but you know we've kind of our, our careers have sort of pa- passed a, a couple of times. And you know that that again was was a, a really uh, foundational experience working directly with development teams on the inside, so to speak, and really seeing the trade offs between you know, again, risk, right? You know, we want more features, more functionality. We want to ship faster and, and we also want it to be secure. Right? Exactly. Like this, I mean, that this, this is a, uh, you know, very aggressive 
I mean, the tech company, um, you know, an entire economy in Seattle is coming up around this kind of this driving tech forward. And it's like, I just can't imagine the, the balance in, you know, that, that, that notion of let's slow down and reduce productivity and bring in some caution and, and, uh, and the security overhead, you know, what kind of, of friction evolution and um, what kind of executive support that actually needed to, to really happen, right? Because it's, it's, it just has to happen at all levels. And it seems like, um, you know, even, I mean, that's a huge question for, for firms today, right? Is yeah. trying to, to um, slow down and do it right. So is, is there any, any more color content? I mean, what, was there any maybe particular instance of friction that you can remember or, or clash of, of somebody who, you know, was, was up against the deadline, but didn't check the, the security boxes on the, the types of things they were supposed to do? Oh man, a, a bunch of them. Uh, you know, I've, I've had, again, the, 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 the privilege of, of presenting to, to Bill Gates and his senior staff. I've, I've seen some, some pretty interesting discussions and, you know, I think his statement is still up there uh, in, in terms of legendary, you know, the, the trustworthy computing memo, you know, when, when forced mm-hmm. to choose between features and security, we'll choose security. I, I think there's no sort of a more visible statement by a more visible titan of the technology world. Uh, than, than Except that. for his, his misquoted, uh, you only need 640 k of RAM, which I don't even think he said. Right, <laughs> so. right. I, I think that, the you know, and I don't want to seem too too rah rah here, right? I mean, I you know I worked there, and and it was not sunshine and roses every day. Even with you know the CEO of the company, the an industry titan of his reputation outside of the company, right? A, mm-hmm. a great successful technologist. You would encounter people there, very from at all levels, very senior to to, to down in the trenches that that would resist, right? That that had mm-hmm. priorities that they thought superseded. Security and in some cases they were right. Right again, it's about risk management, and you know I I can remember some things where you know I, I led the the security team for uh, the internet facing properties. It was called MSN Operations mm-hmm. at the time, and you know I can remember uh, you know uh, uh, making some decisions that that didn't sit well with other security teams there. Uh, that were contradictory and, and having sort of the old security friendly fire, you know, uh, uh, and, and fortunately, you know, had had backing from my management uh, in MSN. And, and you know, the, uh, it, there, there are uh, a bunch of stories, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, the decisions are hard, particularly when it gets down to design. I, I think that was, you know, one of the things that really uh, set in me a great appreciation for the for the process of threat modeling. Right, it's the first security activity that you can typically do. Right, uh, and and Microsoft was one of the innovators. You know, Frank Swiderski uh, 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 and Windows Snyder, the threat modeling book. Right, and and capitalized mm-hmm. and published a lot of the work that was going on. Adam Shostak, of course, wrote the air quote sequel to that. Now, his most recent book on threat modeling and. You know, Microsoft really, really innovated in that space. And, and again, I was privileged to work with with folks, uh, you know, uh, Paul Leach and, and some of the architects of the Windows uh, security uh, subsystems and and see firsthand and some of the challenges they face. Right. That, you know, some of the outside hackers, you know, got the impression that, you know, hey, you know, I found this bug in, in Windows. And, you know, how could they be so, you know, careless about this or why did they see that? And, 
Yeah, it's, no, a, it's a different target, story. Right? Yeah, when when you've got to design it and, and implement it yourself on seven hundred million computers around the world, right? So, and if, I'm, yeah, and just the velocity. I mean, if you think it's it's hard to get a website built in a year now, right? And they're going <laughs> right. from a new version of Windows every year that's got yeah. a completely different architecture for the most part. Yeah. Um, the uh, one of the countermeasures that kind of came in this time period was ASLR and kind of this these these early notions of um, you know exploitation anti exploitation features and, and code protection mechanisms. Um, was that something that was was uh, um, a, a research effort, or do you do you have any insight into to kind of of where where that led to and kind of that I think that 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 definitely has been a, an area of focus for operating system, um, you know, anti exploitation countermeasures and things like that since kind of that that time. So, wait, wait, any any thoughts on on where that came from? And yeah, I, I think again, it was it was the the cultural shift uh, that that the Bill Gates memo uh, articulated, right? I think there was effort to get to that, right? It, I don't think it was sort of a you know point in time, and it certainly changed the the culture after that, I think it was Windows XP Service Pack Two. I want to say that that implemented uh, uh, what is the thing that we take for granted now to do the privilege escalation. Uh, you know, they removed administrator by default, and you right. had to do UAC, right? You know, mm-hmm. uh, user account control. And uh, I, I remember talking internally with uh, the product, uh, the the technical architect of that, and and. You know, not not to share private stuff, but you know that that I that that looked scary for for a minute there. It looked like that wasn't going to actually get included in Windows, right? Because there was a lot of it broke a lot of apps, right? It it, it broke uh, Microsoft's one of their fundamental business propositions: is relationship with the development community, right? All the app developers yeah. imagine they love the the Windows platform and its compatibility and its its uh, you know massive install base, and you know there was immense pressure to to not do that and. You know, fortunately, this individual had a lot of spine and was was a, a very uh, seasoned and experienced person technically and, and security wise and, and, you know, pushed through the compromises that necessary to get it out. And now we, we take it for granted now. But, you know, you, you don't run as administrator in Windows anymore. And, and they've even got more, more and more sophisticated with the, the SIDS behind the scenes and, you know, have tightened it up even more as the years have, have gone on. Awesome. Well, we obviously have a lot more to catch up on and a lot more to talk about. So hopefully uh, going to be able to bring you back soon. Uh, before we go, uh, any any new books on the horizon that we should look up for? I wish, you know, it, it, <laughs> it, it, I, I, it is it's very difficult to do those. I can't I still can't believe I think I'm upward somewhere near 15 books in my career. It's, it's been three or four years since the last one. Uh, Nothing on the horizon now. A lot of stuff I'd love to do. I mean, I think that was the 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 excitement of and then the the insight of the Hacking Exposed series is that you know technology keeps changing and every time it does, the the more it does, that it exposes more attack surface. And there's all kinds of cool stuff going on, right? You know, adversarial machine learning, uh, cloud. You know, applications uh, continue to be a a, a real uh, interesting place to look at mobile. You know, again, you you could do a whole whole show on on just you know what what's the next sort of you know hacking exposed book that should get written. Uh, as much as I want to, I I don't have any specific plans right now. We we should do something. 
Throw me some ideas. <laughs> All right, I'll try to ride your coattails on that one. Well, thanks so much, uh, Joel, and, and we'll, we'll definitely uh, have to do this again. Yeah, you bet, Kevin. Thank you. I really enjoy it. Great questions, and uh, yeah, it's great to, great to, to reacquaint. I uh, really enjoyed it. All right, Cheers. thanks so much. Yeah. All right, Dennis, and we're back from that amazing throwback. Mm-hmm. What do you have to say? Uh, well, first off, you know, uh, I had the privilege to work with Joel starting at the end of 2012, uh, for quite some time. Very uh, closely. Yeah. He was yeah. your, he was your boss for a while. Yeah, he was. So I learned a lot from him. He's a great guy, very knowledgeable on tequilas. I can tell you, he taught me a lot about, uh, security as much as tequila. Can I, t- can I tell a tequila Joel story? Please. So by the way, 2000- tequila Joel is, that's what I want to call his him new nickname. Yes. In in this like 2008 2009, he took me to this like uh, pretty cool tequila bar that was like slightly off the Microsoft campus. I forget what it was called, but it had like some animal in the name. He is like, okay, Kev, uh, gonna teach you a little bit about tequila today. He orders like a flight of progressively expensive tequila, and I'm you know I'm like in my early 20s, so when somebody puts tequila in front of me at this time. I just pick it up and drink it, right? Like I take it as a shot. <laughs> so, so they drop this flight off, and uh, we like cheers it or whatever. And I just think we're doing a shot, so I take it as a shot, uh, put it down, and uh, and then his response is, uh, "Kevin, so that was okay for this first tequila, uh, but these next four are sipping tequilas." <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, you think you're celebrating somebody's twenty first birthday? Okay. It was probably my 21st oh birthday. My I, was, I was young back then. Uh, That's yeah, funny. so that was my Joel tequila story. I, I was glad. I, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. But uh, so, I, you know, you mentioned in the intro about <clears throat> the Hacking Exposed series of books. And uh, I think the best thing, my, my favorite part is when you dub him the Kevin Bacon of mm-hmm. the security world, because, you know, I thought I had some sort of grasp on that. And then, you know, Joel and I, I got to accompany him to some talk he was giving uh, in the area. And at the conclusion of it, I mean, there was a line that stretched the the length of the conference room that we were in of people like clutching, like whatever their favorite copy of the Hacking Exposed series was in waiting in line to like just be able to say hi and sign it. And this is not a book signing event, right? These are just people that knew that he was going to come and sh- and showed up. And that's when I really was like, man, okay, this guy is like, famous famous uh in, in this industry so uh yeah that, but hu- very humble like what you would never oh, know i mean you knew him exactly, for two years before yeah exactly yeah you know, they, i'm you just know. like it was like yeah it was a very now, uh, revealing this idea just hit me yeah so i'm gonna approach joel mm-hmm. and we're gonna have this podcast branded under the hacking exposed <laughs> so so all listeners if you did not get this in your itunes as Hacking Exposed podcast shared secrets with Den and Kev. Mm-hmm. That means that I approached Joel, and Joel very politely declined to let us brand the podcast as that. So everybody knows. Oh, I love this idea, though. Okay, now you are really, you know, you are cooking with gasoline. Um, yeah, we're, we're going to get the merch out there. All right. Well, Dennis, had a great time again talking to you uh, this week about threat intelligence and, and uh, listening to... Uh, to Joel tells some great stories so I'm looking forward to next week okay talk to you then bye bye